Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audiences across the pond. I am your host, Jason Miles, here for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Also, real quick, I do want to thank everyone that joined MT and I. Well, actually, it was pretty much the whole gang and I, but MT and I went the longest on it. Uh, Thursday night champagne room, three and a half hours of some interesting insanity. As one person left in the comments, when all of them are there together, it's like the C-SPAN of TMZ. <laughs> I thank you for that comment. We all thank you from the bottom of all of the Central Committee's hearts. We thank you for that comment. If you are new to the channel, thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Saturday morning. If you're a returning subscriber, welcome back. So glad to have you here. All of us here at TIR would like to send a big thank you to all the subscribers on all platforms. Without you, we couldn't do this. For those that don't know, this is the Saturday free show. There is no bonus champagne room. It's our way of allowing you guys to get a glimpse of what goes on beyond the velvet rope of the TIR VIP. We had a great week of shows kicking off with Dr. Jack Rasmus discussing the current economy and the problem with labor stats. Then I got to talk scumbaggery with music legend, bit of a mentor to me as well, author and journalist Eugene Robinson. And Thursday, we had the entire TIR Central Committee, that is myself, Pascal Robert, Deep State Cuba, and me, Jean Bajlan, in the house to talk geopolitics, technology, and loneliness. So, now that we have that out of the way, let's talk about what you guys came here to listen to today with my very esteemed guest, someone I am extremely proud to say is a friend, also a bit of a mentor. The industrialization of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, being the chief diversity officer and CEO of TIR, I feel a lot of pressure to get a balanced and equitable workspace. As you know, we are a very colorful bunch here at This Is Revolution, and we even have a woman. And get this, she's black, and sometimes we even allow her to speak. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the business of diversity, equity, and inclusion is Big business that is backed by venture capital. It's a $7.5 billion industry that will double in size by 2025. But who is it benefiting? According to an inequality.org, the United States exhibits more wealth inequality than any other developed nation in the world. Is DEI helping close that gap? Racial, gender, and religious discrimination occur in the workplace, but is DEI decreasing its occurrence or is it teaching us to mask it better? Does DEI help create a safe, comfortable work environment or does it create one in which everyone is scared to speak for the chance of offending someone by uttering a microaggression that can lead to a talk to HR? Yikes. What happens to work and learning environments when a multi-billion dollar industry is created around making hyper-vigilance so hyper of policing everyday office or classroom conversations as discrimination and offensive? 
Today, we'll be speaking with author and professor of film studies at the University of California, Irvine, Catherine Liu, about the industrialization of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what that means. Please welcome our very esteemed guest, who was playing sick today. Just so you guys know, she said, Jason, I'm, I'm feeling a little under the weather, but I'm going to come through anyway. So this is like Terrell Owens in that Super Bowl where he played on a half-broken leg. Please welcome the Catherine Liu. I have serious TMJ. If I'm like this, it's not because I got punched. It's because I actually have a serious thing. Anyway, good to see you, Jason. It's very good to see you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lou, for taking the time to join us today. Um, Now, this is a topic that you and another member of the show, uh, Mean Jean Bajlan, feel very strongly about. Um, Why do you have a problem with (laughs) DII? Why do I have a problem? Okay, that's hilarious. But um, first, I want to give a shout out to my friend Jennifer Pan, who's writing a book on this topic. So I'm really, we're all going to be looking forward to that. But since Jason and I are BIPOC (laughs) (laughs) and we care about inequality, it would seem that the industrialization of diversity, equity, inclusion is like a slap in the face of every leftist worth their salt. But people go along to get along, and there are very few people who are willing to publicly speak out against it. But I'm going to give you a little bit of history about how I've experienced it um, as an employee, as a worker, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I come into the university like 30 years ago in graduate school. I'm like the only Asian-American woman for miles around, not in an Asian-American studies program. And um, things are, you know, I get hired in my first job. I refuse to do Asian-American studies. I do what I do. I get a PhD in French. My first job, I actually get hate mail from what I think is an older professor who um, knows my file and accuses me of being an imposter and a sham and um, because I got like multicultural grants. Because in the 90s... You got Claudine Gade a little bit? What? You got Claudine Gade a little bit? <laughs> I, I, You know, um, I don't pretend to be as fantastic as she is. No, I was just this little assistant professor and an older white guy professor mm-hmm. who I... was. Um, slipped a piece of hate mail under the door when I got tenure. And, you know, when I was talking to a lot of women and people of color in academia, including Ture Reid, we found that we all had similar experiences. Like in the 90s was under Clinton, 90s, early 2000s. And um, there was this top-down imposition of multiculturalism at that Mm. time. And people were really mad about political correctness and stuff like that. And people like Ture and I are just coming up in the world. We want to get our work done. And um, we have these experiences are fairly unorganized. But in the 2000s, when I um, moved to UC, there be, there, um, we started to have to do sexual violence and sexual harassment training, SVSH, um, because California has very, very strong Title IX rules for its um, 
Universities and Title IX is the federal law that was passed in the early 70s to, to outlawing um, sex discrimination from any university or institution that took federal money. And in those early days, like the, the sexual violence and sexual harassment training prevention program, that's a mouthful, was done by like employees in our Office of Equal Opportunity. Um, I remember the woman coming, giving us lectures, and um, that was its earliest iteration. I just did one like a month ago two weeks ago, three weeks ago, mm -hmm. it took three hours. And what I found, and it was online. A lot of this stuff moved online, as you recall, because of the pandemic, but also because people couldn't handle the office of equal opportunity, couldn't actually handle the workload anymore as diverse as diversity, equity, and inclusion was um, included under sexual violence, sexual harassment, prevention training. And um, what used to be this kind of like homemade training that um, an administrator would do for the uh, faculty is now farmed out to a company called Vector Solutions for the UC. Now, I didn't have time because I just finished this training and Jason and I started talking about this. I didn't have time to do the deep dig and I don't think the UC would let me know. I want to know how much my employer is paying this company, mm -hmm. which is based in Ohio, Vector Solutions, to do this elaborate, very corporate, I mean, I'm not even gonna say like basic corporate training program to prevent um, discrimination. So it's now called like anti-discrimination prevention, and discrimination, anti-sexual violence, sexual harassment prevention program. And it is, it, was, it it took three hours. And if you try to speed through it, they'll like um, ding you and then you have to start over. Oh, so you it. can't like fast forward the video no. and be like, hey, you don't know. Oh, no. Oh, oh. And this is the first time I've taken it in this Vector Solutions format. So I started looking up Vector Solutions. Vector Solutions is a company based in Ohio. So you're like, oh yeah, that's good. No, it was backed by... Um, a private equity company called Golden Gate Capital, which mm -hmm. is based in San Francisco. And I started thinking like, they're based in San Francisco. They're probably like donors to the UC. There's probably some like serious skullduggery going on there. But one of the things I've discovered in my old age is that one way to make money, if you're a VC or if you're a private company is just like latch yourself onto the public teat. We have this public university that has, you know, billions of dollars of a budget. We have federal regulations to come down that we have to abide by. And VC, venture capital and private equity, find that need, find mm -hmm. that niche. Mm -hmm. They make money. Like you think they're all creative, innovative? No, yep. they're parasites. So Golden Gate Capital, you know, um, sponsors this company that does these pretty bland um, trainings that are very tech because you used to be able to fast forward through them. Now you can't. And they have these like little um, videos of real people with scenarios that you're supposed to watch. Um, and then they ask you questions in their lessons and you download like federal laws if I'm going to read federal law in the middle of one of these things. And um, then 
I saw that they had recently bought been bought out by another private equity company called Genstar Capital and Insights Capital. Mm-hmm. And these are all private equity companies based in San Francisco. So what whether or not Vector Solutions makes any money from having glommed onto the public teat, um, venture capital has already like made bankers and the um, lawyers a lot of money. And the original investors in Golden Gate Capital made a lot of money because they sold their company to another private equity company. So this is making your mind spin. It's just that this is how contemporary capitalism is working now. And I don't want like the university has prestige. It has a brand name, UC, right? Mm -hmm. And we're the workers who work, you know, we're not in a factory. It's not like pure Marxism where we're producing um, products or values, but let's say we're providing services, which is a top flight education, right? Mm -hmm. And it used to be that the state of California would fund most of the budget, operating budget of the University of California. That all went down. They started going down the drain in the 70s when um, Ronald Reagan, oh, the governor. 60s, late 60s, yeah. up to early 70s when Ronald Reagan became governor and he said, oh, you little fucking ingrates, you're all mm-hmm. like protesting the war. I'm going to introduce this thing called student fees. And the student fees have just gone up and up and up. And we um, now have, we take a lot of out-of-state students who pay full tuition, the amount, you know, like the UC was a private university. It's still a great deal for Southern, for Californians if your kids can get in. It's harder and harder to get in because we want the full fee-paying students. So then, you, you know, the UC, like um, spokespeople will say to you, but, you know, we um, we give Pell Grants and scholarships to the most needy Southern California, to the most needy Californians. They can pay down to zero. It's the middle class and the um, um, international and out-of-state students who subsidize this, and it's really great. So you think about that for a moment. They are, these, these kids who are on full scholarship are getting Pell Grants from the government, which comes into the UC operating budget, everyone's tuition dollars gets mixed up and some of it is going right to private cap, private equity mm-hmm. in the form of more and more farmed out activities. Like the building of our dorms is now built by for-profit company based in Texas called American Campus Communities. I don't have time to do all this research because I'm not writing a book, but you just scratch the surface <laughs> and the UC is a behemoth with private equity incrustations all over it, sucking it dry. And DEI is one of these functions that became really, really like invest, you know, uh, that got a lot of liberals very excited and um, exercised because of Michael Ferguson, because of Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown, because of um, finally George Floyd and um the administrators, you know, we have an African-American chancellor. They were very, very eager to show that the UC was like on board with creating racial justice. So rather than um, 
do anything redistributive, we actually invited private equity to encrust itself more deeply in the activities of the university to suck money out of the university to give us this kind of like training. And now you can ask, is the upper administration now more diverse? Is the faculty more diverse? Um, And there are efforts, and yes, in some ways that has worked out. Most of the faculty in the humanities, Jason and I are going to talk about this someday, who have been newly hired are women of color. Mm -hmm. And um, that has changed. If you look up at the upper echelon of our rulers and bosses, Mm -hmm. that has not changed. That's all these white guys, but more deeply disturbing than that, because we have an African-American chancellor, mm-hmm. is this money suck that's you that's taking tuition dollars, federal grant dollars, tuition dollars from in-state, out-of-state students, loans, student loans, and sucking it out of the university right into the pockets of private cap, private equity. So the workers who produce value in the UC are people who actually teach the students, who clean the facilities, who run the facilities, who provide the services um, on all of these different levels. And they are always, they're unionizing. I mean, you know, there's more labor action, the faculty maybe not so much, but um, if you think of the UC as a factory, then you have more and more foremen watching over the workers and, extracting value from them and paying private equity. This has been the brilliant formula for capitalism under the neoliberal regime, under the period of austerity. I don't even know, like people say it's not neoliberal anymore, it's neo-feudal. I just say like it's capitalism. And it's very hard for people to focus on this kind of stuff because we've been so schooled in identitarianism and we're like, oh, I want to be recognized. Oh, I don't feel good. I'm, I feel offended. Well, you know what really offends me? Fucking private equity in my house. <laughs> but okay. isn't that kind of neoliberalism 101? Like, hey, it's all about me and my feelings and look how important I am. And I'm Well, it, it is, it is. Thing. But I also feel like um, we've been weakened mm-hmm. in our ability to be analytical. Mm-hmm. Because of our focus on the feelings, ourselves as victims. The recognition. Yeah. And, you know, it's an ideological machine that prevents people from thinking coolly and coldly about where the money is and what the money, what, what's happening, how we're redistributing money up rather than down. And it just, this is like what makes me so angry most of the time is that we, you know, in left space left like and then the, the liberals spaces there's a lot of like superficial activity but if i you know i've told people i've done a lot of research i've I told people about this even though i'm like working on trauma uh, and like if you are a bunch bunch around a bunch of young like lefty radical faculty they they're just like okay okay we get okay they, they don't want to focus on this they'd rather go they'd rather fight for the UC making a declaration for a ceasefire in Palestine, very noble cause, but why is the nitty gritty of this so difficult to focus on? That's that's very interesting. Um, Facts ain't sexy, someone said. 
Facts are super sexy to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hey, you, we were talking about us, but we don't have to get into the specifics. I'm sure you don't want to on air um, of, of a situation. But that comment about fighting for the university to sign on for a ceasefire, I had asked, I was having a conversation with Gene, and I said, and I'll ask you, as we've covered Palestine on this show literally since it started. Mm. Um, and I do have to ask the question, what does that do? It just seems really symbolic. What do you mean? Well, if you get the university to sign up for a ceasefire, like what, oh. is the, what is the end? Like what if they sign on tomorrow, what happens? Yeah. It's not even, um, I, I, it's not the university. They're trying to get the city council. Like okay, let's, city say the city, council. let's say the, yeah, the, the city, city of Irvine, California signs on and says, <laughs> Please stop. You know what? It just makes us seem really cool, like Cambridge or Berkeley. Oh, is that really what's? I, yeah. I don't know what it's about. It's like being I, in I, the in group, like Cambridge, Massachusetts did it, Berkeley did it, and then um, yeah, it's very it's symbolic. But it's so much. It's so pat. Like everyone's very passionate about it. Of course, right? it's and it's, you can't yeah. get passionate about getting private equity off campus because it just seems so complex. But I think if we actually work towards it, we could actually reduce the um, UC budget and redistribute it for the workers. Um, right now, we're looking at UCI at a $120 million deficit, mm-hmm. $60 million of which has already gone into cuts. And then we have the EVC come on and be like, oh, we're going to look for $60 million more. I would be like... Yeah, let's look at all these offices, the Office of Student Wellness, the Office of Equity, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. How much money are they are they sucking off? What do they know about what actually happens in a classroom? I got to have I got to have you stop yelling about people sucking stuff off. <laughs> Especially considering your illness today. <laughs> you know what? I feel sexually harassed. I'm leaving right now. <laughs> My lawyer will talk to you. <laughs> I, hey, and in TIR, I am HR as well, so I'll have to talk to myself. Um, Can I speak to your manager? <laughs> Hello. Was <laughs> <laughs> that color still acting up again? Um, um, I feel very sexually harassed by your host, and uh, I think he hasn't done enough training. <laughs> Considering the show we did Thursday night, oh my God. Okay, so <laughs> seriously though, um, we were doing a show on our sports show and we talked about how uh, venture capital is entering into the collegiate arena through the realm of kind of renting, buying uh, athletic departments because as what? you know, numerous athletic departments don't make money. Right. Right. And a lot of it has to do with Title Nine, and <laughs> there's a lot of sports. Sorry, a lot of sports don't make money, mm-hmm. and you're hearing more and more people talk about, um, hey, uh, football and basketball make all the money, and women's volleyball. Why are we paying for these buses and these facilities for these sports that just they cost us money? Okay. Um. And private capital is coming in, and right now they're not really making that much money, and there's only a handful of schools they have their hand in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
it's being looked at as like maybe they're taking the tax deduction deduction because it's a loss and they're using this investment today as a loss mm-hmm. but is the long game to come in and like totally privatize so mm-hmm. we also had an, you had another talk about when i was with you at uci about student housing about how there was some private equity involved in student housing as well right yeah the american um so one way of looking like you're cutting the budget is actually farming out the building of student housing to private uh, companies mm-hmm. so um someone just said that we're being reflexive cynicism here well, i'm not i'm not cynical about this issue I just want to look at things plainly and clearly and think about where we're investing our energies. No, it's important that the Palestinians understand that not all Americans support this bloody war. Um, But I'm going to focus on these issues at hand, the issues that I understand better, the issues that I think people can organize around to um, produce better outcomes, this is like in corporate speak, for ordinary working class people in America. Okay, so one of the things that makes college so unaffordable are escalating costs. And what they told us in our budget deficit meeting is that inflation has increased, um, you know, all the operating costs of the UC, everything is like very unpredictable. But if you look, if you take one step back from this and you look at how the tax base has changed in America and in California and how mm-hmm. America was once and California was once able to fully fund the UC and now says now um, the state only gives like 11 to 13 percent of the budget to the UC. You'll see that that sort of diminishing investment in public education is accompanied by an obscene accumulation of wealth in private equity and venture capital in the state of California. And this has to do with Silicon Valley, with the model of um, disrupt, burn it, fail fast, um, accumulation of monies in an an extraction of value from companies that then reorganize themselves, not around a product or anything else, Mm -hmm. but as pure financial instruments. So all of these private equity companies that are in California um, have accumulated wealth at the cost of the actual worker. And this obscene accumulation of wealth is looking for good investments. So mm-hmm. it's going into different sectors, like the college athletic um, prop, mm-hmm. sector. They they look at ventures they think can make money that are losing money. Mm-hmm. So that's like a perfect, you know, college athletics is a perfect thing for them. I don't know what they'll do to that sector, but they're, they're obviously looking at that closely to try to change it. DEI training, mm-hmm. another sector. They're like, how can we make money from this? Here's another area that private equity is in right now that you're going to be looking at urgent care centers. Private urgent care centers are popping up all over California. And my friend says New York City, too. Like a mini mall closes its its hardware store and suddenly there's an urgent care there. That's funded 
because there are huge amounts of money controlled by very few men, most of whom are white, most of whom got MBAs in the Ivy League. So all this DEI stuff is bullshit to them, but they can run their company very um, with like underlings that are very diverse. And they are going in to fulfill needs that the public infrastructure is failing to do so. So like hospitals, doctors, offices are overburdened, right? So right now, if your kid has an emergency, like in my neighborhood, I've heard this from my friends, they say, take him to urgent care down the street. That urgent care will then charge insurance. No problem. That urgent care is a for-profit urgent care office. It's very slick. It's very beautiful. And it's funded by private equity. I don't know if they're um, they're uh, making money yet, but they also like hire doctors and nurses who are overworked in the um, larger hospitals, larger practices, give them allegedly, you know, better working conditions. But they're in every mini mall now. So that's in one. That's another area where, like, with the failure of um, public health in America, yeah. you have this insertion of this um, service provider funded by VC. The other area, you, um, a friend of mine is Helene Olin is writing an article on is veterinary services. Really, really. Yes. Okay. Well, you know that during the pandemic, everyone got pets, and we're all like super attached to our pets. I'm, you know, we got we Love adopted a doggy during the pandemic, and um, there were these little um, there are these animal hospitals that I saw all of a sudden they had the same logo, and it's called Veterinary Care of America (VCA). It's actually the Mars company, which makes Mars bars. They have a private equity branch and they're buying up veterinary practices and hospitals and making the vets charge you with charge you for upsell you on different services for your pets because you love them so much. And here's the killer. Why is this happening? Because older vets and Helene has all the numbers and I'm hoping it's going to come out soon. Um, Younger vets come out of veterinary school with so much student loan debt. So that already is a financial instrument, right? They can't buy out the older vets' practices. They can't afford it. So who comes in? Private equity. Now, shifting back to your interesting disdain for DEI. You... Open the show and mention that you were a victim of racism in the workplace. Mm-hmm. For sure. Wouldn't someone bring that up to you and say, look, Catherine, you are an Asian woman um, that has fought against sexual and racial discrimination since you've walked into this industry. Don't okay. you want a system that we can have where these people are trained um, and understand uh, the errors of their ways? A system, right. So I want, so I think that this older professor, if he was trained in mm-hmm. DEI, would be less harassy and um, hateful towards me. I really don't think so. And Jason, you and I, sh- you shared the article with me by yeah. Frank Dobbins about how DEI training does not actually decrease discrimination. And that um, it does not actually decrease bias. I just don't think that a top-down managerial solution is the right thing to do, uh, a right way to proceed. 
I, um, I survived it. I'm like more successful and well-known than that asshole. And um, I wish that I had been able to tell him off directly. But when I went to, and you know, we didn't have, we had the multicultural services office or something. Everyone told me, do not talk to him directly. Do not confront him. And I think that that is part of this managerialism Someone talks about the PMC where you have a professional manager mm-hmm. try to mediate conflict. And I think Toure and I talked about this too. It's like that intervention then blocks a very human confrontation. I'd be like, I, I want to go up to him and go, you know what? You can't treat me this way. You can't treat the chair of my department this way. You're an asshole. Like whatever. Mm-hmm. Was he going to hit me? Okay. He was like mm-hmm. six four. I'm not afraid of him, but it was all these different levels of professional managerialism that said, no, 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 you can't talk to him. Someone's going to take care of this. We're going to have an investigation. Zero happened. I don't even care about the investigation. I feel like, you know, because I grew up in the scrappy schoolyards of the tri-state area in New York, like I could handle myself. I could totally handle myself. So you're saying they didn't let me. They didn't let me handle myself. You're saying myself. let's get rid of DUI and just get the UFC octagon out there and you guys <laughs> settle this shit like fucking gentlemen. I I don't know, Jason, but I do feel like DEI and PM and the managerial style just like kills any like human interaction possibility, makes it a logarithm, makes it a training, makes it puts all of this interface between you and the other person and what you're confronting and just alienates people further from each other and makes the conflicts between people more and more like um technological let's say today is technological someone says in the comments that sometimes conflict just needs to happen i agree because sometimes you don't even understand what you did until a certain amount of conflict happens um but do you feel there's a fear like, hey, that's just not what we do. It's not professional, quote unquote. You're then you get a reputation of being hard to work with. Yeah, you know, um, the professional managerial class hates conflict, hates direct conflict. It is in conflict with the interests of the working class, so it has to mask conflict. It wants to manage any kind of conflict into con- this kind of harmonization. It has something to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. It, it's true. It's true. That is what I would have liked to have said, and um, then we could have an ar- we could have an argument. But but it took me a long time to realize that that kind of thing will never happen in academia or in a professional setting. And um, and it's a real pity. It's a real shame because I think he could have learned something from me more than he could have learned from <laughs> DEI training. Pay me three million dollars. Um, and the training is, you know, resented by people. And Jason shared this article with me, which which says that, you know, DEI training, and this Jen Pan discovered this too in her research, is that training actually produces more resentment, more self-censorship, more quiet um, anger, um, less trust. I mean... So the article also said that a lot of white people get offended by these diversity trainings because they definitely feel uh, picked on. Um, you don't like that a little bit? You get a little kick out of that? 
Oh, that way they feel picked on? <laughs> no, I, I don't want them to. Oh, you know what? I would like the chance, executive vice chancellor to be picked on. I'd like to be like, go in there and go, how did we, how did we get $6 million in a hole? I would like upper administration mm -hmm. to be unhappy if we had like more direct confrontation about how they mismanaged the university budget and stuff like that. Um, white people being made uncomfortable for being racist, I think it's not my business. I'd rather, <laughs> I, I don't care. I don't care if they're racist. Um, I would rather strengthen the critical faculties of young leftists of any color to be able to be like more stoic more aggressive, more mm -hmm. controlled in their anger, mm -hmm. and um, more in solidarity with each other. Because that's what we need. It's do like you, do you more solidarity. That, do you think some of this stuff actually works against solidarity and kind of can create racial silos? I don't know about racial silos, but it certainly feeds into a silent resentment. Mm -hmm. of, and, of, and fear of, of, of the people? other. Of the other. Of the yeah. other. Yeah. So, for example, do you think... I'm just asking again here at TIR, okay. which is very racially diverse. Okay. Yeah. Did you do your training though? Uh, the training was we had to watch a Spike Lee movie. <laughs> and then, uh, and then we watched, uh, uh, roots <laughs> and, we we figured it out. We My name out. is Kunta Kinte. Yeah, after that, we were like, you know, John Amos <laughs> is very underrated, and we figured it out. We figured it out after that. That's cute. I like it. I like it. I like it. And um, also, I should, I've, in reading some of the, the materials you had, mm. and then in reading that article, Teray, that Teray sent me that article this morning. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, uh, I was like, man, I'm doing the wrong thing. I need to get into the DEI thing. Like, oh yeah. Oh my tie god. On and be like, as a black man, <laughs> I understand. And then I'll just make up some identity that I don't have. I'm a pansexual black man. <laughs> but I didn't. And y'all have to hire my. Y'all have to hire my polycule because I don't have just one partner. I'm polyamorous. Um, we were discussing the leftist polycule. Uh, Bert Cooper is watching this show. Bertrand Cooper, uh, New York Times and Atlantic mm -hmm. columnist. And he sent me a text message. Yes. That means it's urgent. <laughs> Anyone that sends a text message that oh, isn't doing a, oh, my yeah. child. Yeah. So he says, yo, tell Catherine we talk about this all the time. Say that shit to my fucking face. <laughs> Not as elegant as, as her point about killing human interaction, but same idea. <laughs> See it to my face. I know. I know. I, you know, it's like I can't. Um, okay, let me give you an example of how this went. I don't think I'm breaking any um, confidentiality agreements. So, for those that don't know, the man she's talking about is Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not Noam Chomsky. You would never have known. Can you He's imagine like Noam some French, some French professor guy. There's um, an Oriental woman in film. Yeah, yeah. 
Racist Noam Chomsky is a new character. I, oh, yeah, that's a good name for a band. Racist Noam Chomsky. <laughs> I like that band. Um, so people are terrified to speak directly about things, but I also think that the DEI teaches young scholars of color to have an attitude of, let me speak to your manager. And is that really, I want to speak to the manager. Is that really how we want people to treat um, a social situation or an institutional situation is to go in the mode of complaint to a manager to report other people. I think that there has this kind of ideological training that DEI does is infantilizing um, people of color, Ooh. making them feel like the offense is something that I can only litigate through HR, mm. which is just not true. But the other thing, and I talked to you about this, Jason, is that we had this, we're, we're having this issue in my department because we have a lot of young Chinese students from China, international students, mm -hmm. who do not know the discourse. Right? They went to, they're, they're from China. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the graduate students have to teach them are really appalled by certain things that they say, which I know has to do with translation, but nobody can say this openly. And so, you know what the solution, because, okay, let me just give you an example, Jason, and Jason, my one black friend, I already told him, ha, 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 ha. I have more than one black friend. <laughs> I hope he has more than one Asian friend. <laughs> anyway, um, I already told him the story, but I know for a fact, because I've heard Chinese people not able to deal with the discourse, think they're being politically correct when they say colored people, because they're trying to say people of color. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes American, African-Americans very uncomfortable and unhappy. And rather than telling them, they turn it into a complaint. And so this kind of, training to be um, in a, unable to confront people directly, mm -hmm. you know, translates into every level of organization. So when we're like talking about this in the media, I'm like, okay, you guys, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the Chinese students. Because no one could even say that, right? Well, were they afraid that you would get mad because you're in the room? Like if you weren't there? No, just like, like, no, 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 no. They, even if I wasn't there, they would be afraid to say, you know, there's one group. And there's something like really, really culturally different about the way that the Chinese view themselves in China and the United States mm -hmm. from the American pluralist identity politics um, way of dealing with people. And we are exporting this kind of language to Europe, to our client states. But China is not our client state. So they have not adopted this language, they, they, this language of liberal pluralism, but the students are like genuinely trying to be um, with the discourse, but, oh, someone complained about how they were taught, they were called like Professor Kathy. Let's just put, let's just put me in this thing. You know why the Chinese students do that? Because in China, your last name comes first. So they think you're, oh. they're being respectful. And they were complaining about this. And I'm like, wow. Like, you so do they need idea. to have a conversation? So, okay, this is the question. 
if they if you don't understand as someone that has traveled all over the place right right, right. and even within these very united states of america there's right. a lot of different social norms um that you have to get used to and understand that not everything uh is about you what did amber say in her book oh they don't even notice you <laughs> not everything right. is about you right and you, and you can't get offended that's by right. everything that's right um do they need then maybe uh, a class because i've been on the campus of uci and not to sound racist there seems to be a lot of asian students there why would that be racist just it's maybe. just fact just a few, maybe. I don't. The question is: Is there white students? Are there white students? <laughs> Did you guys see that really lame Saturday Night Live skit about UCI last weekend? Where they, they had did like, one on UC Irvine. Yeah, like because they were so straight. It was all about how UCI students are so like afraid of drugs. And there was this one student talking about how he had done psilocybin and the other students like, you're going to die. And Ayo Edibiri was in it. And yeah. they had like their token Asian guy, like five white guys and one African-American woman. I'm like, have they been to campus? It's like 75% Asian and Latina. The Asians and that I've been around do fuck tons of drugs. So I don't know who these Asians, they, is it that model? Is See, that's. Maybe yeah, Saturday, Saturday Night Live needs DEI like, training, and it's like, hey, it's from the Asians they love just hard update. drugs, and then yeah. you take them to a rave in, in Hong Kong. They they are like dealing with like 1980s uh, racial ideas of, of who this yeah. is. This is really interesting. So, trying not to be racist here, Catherine Lou. I'm trying to remember my own training. I'm and gonna I'm just come thinking. and give you. I'm gonna train your ass. I'm come over and give you some training. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so that's the other thing I really resent is that it's not educational. Why are we talking about training? Like when this whole thing started, I was like, why do we accept the fact that we're seals? <laughs> we're just training. Ah, training. Why? Why? Why isn't it education? Like, maybe we can have, like, education about race relations in America. You know, all of this stuff could be really valuable. But I did the DEI training during the pandemic right around the, um, blaze, as a proud blazing thought. I know. I know. I, I, I get really mad at him about the Blasian thing, too. You know, I just don't think he has enough... Blasian awareness as a proud w mother of a Asian, I really worry about I, I attitude about so much about my children's home country just so they know I care. They're Americans, Jason. Stop being racist. But they don't look like it. <laughs> Americans come in every color now. My daughter and... looks like Moana, and no one thinks she's black. But she's American. She's American. No, they're just some different combinations. Now, I thought my son was going to look like, um, um, what's his name, Aquaman, but it's <laughs> <with> my wife, <laughs> Jason Momoa. <laughs> 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, he's tall. He's tall. He is tall. He, is tall. he looks very white. But he's like living in Asia. He doesn't want to come back here. Um, so, so, um, so I, so the more like the more serious question is, how is all this focus on identity, on training, on the management of difference actually um, mm. distracting us from the private equity, private equity profit extraction from public institutions? That's my question. I think it is. Oh, is it the time? Yeah, Jason. Jason has been canceled so many times <laughs> in my mind already. When someone said a, a while back, they're like, this is why white people won't have you on their show. Anymore. Why? Just because because we exist and don't we just Toussaint was yelling at me the other day. She goes, there you go again. Just fucking shoot more sacred cows. Just... <laughs> You know what, Jason? If we don't do it, who will? We were making fun of Maya Angelou on Thursday. Oh my goodness! I gotta, I gotta find that for you because it was probably one of the funny. I laughed. Well, anyway, let's get back to <laughs> speaking of racial sensitivity. That term is just so wrong, right? Racial sensitivity. I mean, just like you have to be, it describes, you were talking about the state of hypervigilance. Yes. And and if that's the way that you're going to be in the world, no one can maintain that state of hypervigilance. And what is the threat, you know, if you're not vigilant enough? I don't know. On the other hand, like there should be, here's what should be happening if you really cared about racial justice and racial equity at this point. Um, we should make the UC free. We should Ooh. make it, um, we should, as it was in 1968, we should even create open admissions. We should, we should ban elite private high schools that funnel people in to elite universities, we should invest heavily in math, science, and languages within African-American communities. We should be doing, pulling out all the stops. We should dissolve private equity and take that money and invest oh, it in teacher okay. education. What, what you're talking about, hey, hold on here, dangerous what? woman. This what? is why Noam Chomsky yelled at you in 1978. <laughs> I was much later than 70. Don't make me that old. <laughs> you're such a... You know what? On top of being racist, you're ageist. <laughs> I really demand to see your manager right now. But what you're saying is not making elite institutions elite and letting the norms come in. Mm. And we can't have that. Right? Because if I'm a PMC of color... I'm a special snowflake. Oh, you are. You are. I am on a pedestal. I am yep. a savior to the community. Yeah, we are. Now, also another thing I'm I'm able to do with this privileged position is now instead of looking down my nose at poor people that yes. may look like me. Yes. Like, you know, with a la Bill Cosby, right? Yes. Now I can write a book about their dysfunction. Um in AAVE. I can. But you can also pretend that you are helping them. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, Kendi. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I can do like Kendi now. I can say, like look Kendi. at me. 
I have dreadlocks. I went Wait, to a you black can college. teach white people. That's what's really important for the black PMC is that you can teach white people mm-hmm. how to be guilty. That does sound fun, though. You wouldn't have a little fun at that? A little? I think that's why you married that white man. So you could just every he's every German. other month. He's not guilty. He, strangely enough, he doesn't feel white guilt. He might feel German guilt, but no white Oof. guilt. Because he doesn't get a nerve. Really? Yeah. I don't want to. Um, like how the, yeah, I don't. I don't want to be doling out, um, you know, um, forgiveness to white people. That, uh, to but me, you can that monetize would... it. I know. Try it. Try it one day. Instead of writing a book like Virtue Hoarders, write a book like, I don't know, call it Tiger Lily. <laughs> and it could be, it could be a... Oh, my God. I know what I could call it. Amy Tan-like journey. Yeah, I could call it like... Um, Mulan in the PMC. Ooh. Right. Ooh, the real story of Mulan. And have a picture yes. of you when you were like eight. <laughs> Fucking, you know, yeah, with like just big ass glasses. And then and then have some fucked up story that isn't 100% true. Like when I was working in my parents' laundromat, all the yeah. kids tease me. You know, we did have a little store called Panda Gifts. And kids did tease me but am i gonna make that my life story i guess i could right and then you do a ted talk and everyone in the crowd is crying and then all the rich asians love you because they're like oh, oh she's yeah telling our oh yeah story. oh yeah mm-hmm. you know before i was fucking really rich i was kind of rich and people and the worst thing that happened to me was someone being calling me a name on a playground yeah. Now I'm living in all these exclusive neighborhoods and sending my kids to private school, so nobody's calling anyone names and playgrounds. But inside their homes, they're calling you all kinds of names. And I, we have to police that as well. Yeah, can you believe that? Yeah. That That's where... So this is where all this stuff gets kind of weird for me when it comes to kind of the privacy of your own place and why should I care about what people say in the privacy of their mm. own place. And there was a Cedric Johnson connected me with someone. I can't remember their name off the top of my head. We just we just met, and uh, they have a podcast, and they were talking about someone. I think they knew, or it was a story. I can't remember exactly, but the person was singing a Drake song in their apartment, and they thought well, they have roommates, and they thought all the roommates were gone, so the Drake song had the N word in it. And they're, not, they're not black and they're, they were singing the song and they're like n-word and people heard they're like you said the n-word and he's like well i didn't think anybody was around and uh they were having like a big meeting about it and i think they tried to kick him out um, of the roommates oh wow. yeah, yeah 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 and i and i i, I was like really <laughs> that's you're that mad it's in the song i mean what do you want him to do Drake said See, there's it. There's a there's this deeper and deeper expectation of like internal um, control, mm-hmm. and this kind of transformation of the actual human psyche to be completely adaptable to the DEI training, whether at home or at work. And what um, you realize is it's a great way 
to break down the public-private divide that people were trying to defend, you know, as part of the European Enlightenment, that we would have private lives that could be protected from the gaze of our bosses, the gazes of our neighbors. And, um, you know, it, some of the rad libs are the first ones to say, you know, that's hegemonic or that's, you know, um, colonial, like, um, it's European, whatever. But the question is that you have to have a way of asserting your identity not at work. That's like the basic right of every worker. And it's not even like you, you have a dignity of being a human being who is not a worker and who's not surveilled by a boss. And I feel like all these young kids have internalized the boss so much that they're like little Stalins watching each other, like little cultural revolutionary red guards ready to tell on each other. I didn't know this story, Jason. That sounds really crazy. But I, I feel like it's really sad. Yeah. It's really sad. And people need like political re-education. It's like you need to be free of work sometimes. Is that so scandalous? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, now, here's what I, I so you with the stuff you sent me about all these companies that do all these DEI trainings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was looking through who who worked where and positions they had, and they but they looked very diverse. A lot of smiley faces. A lot but of, the top was also. It was very white. white. It was very white. Male, white male. It, it was kind of like a it felt like dad, like hey, I love my multiracial kids but only one person writes the checks dun, dun, dun. the president ceo yeah. is always white and then all these like people of color and the vp are you know smiling and like the darker like the lower you go the darker they get and their titles sound bigger but it's like i'm the third page of employees <laughs> and i finally saw like the blackest woman on here blackest woman on here right does DEI allow racial minority groups the ability to leverage their ethnicity for upward mobility, or has the industry itself created more BIPOC, LGBTGIA persons the ability to become C-suite executives within DEI? And if so, is that a bad thing? According to leanin.org, mm-hmm. yeah, I went to leanin.org. Okay. To add to their burden, black women are far more likely than other employees to be coping with the impact of racism and racial trauma. More than 60% of black women have been personally affected by racial trauma in the past year. Given that they face bias on a regular basis at work, it should come as no surprise that black women are relatively pessimistic about their company's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Black women are twice as likely as women overall to say their company has not followed on their commitments to racial equity. And less than half of black women feel that DEI is an important priority at their company. Mm-hmm. Or is this just a way to elevate PMCs of color to? This is all about like companies, way? you know, mobility within companies. That's very different from actual social mobility, which is about, you know, the masses of people who get 
moved up through um, poverty into working, into jobs that pay well and allow them to make a living. So all of these surveys seem so focused on internal corporate politics. And I'm, internal corporate politics are terrible for not just black women, but I would say women of color. Are you a woman of color? Yeah, technically, yeah. In America, yeah. But we, um, um, yeah, and so that kind of thing in academia now, you can, if you don't ascribe to the DEI language, you cannot rise in the ranks mm. through administration. Mm. Now, again, we've mentioned already, you've been around like, since uh, 76 is when you started teaching. Oh, will you stop it? Oh, my God. Okay. As as we're first rolling out kind of these kind of racial trainings because of, uh, you know, uh, civil rights laws and such. Mm. Uh, um, Affirmative action laws Mm -hmm. as as Mm -hmm. well that the Reagan administration definitely tried to roll back. Um, Do you think affirmative action laws are important? I don't know. I don't know if they've done actually what they wanted to do. Mm. I don't think that upper administration or the government is much more diverse. And I don't think that the civil rights dreams of King were are accomplishable through affirmative action rights. Mm. King was becoming more and more of a socialist and understanding like what the class issue was. Yeah. And I think that affirmative action actually blocks our understanding of the cla- of the class issue. And 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 promotes, you know, a kind of meritocratic myth that can be technocratically adjusted so that you can have like it's what Adolf Reed says, you know, you can have like representate proper representation of the population through every like income bracket. And that will be um, the achievement of our um, multiracial utopia. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is that. Um, this guy who wrote me the hate mail said that I was an imposter because I was an affirmative action hire. So mm. I've got that right in my face, you know. So w- were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like sociopathically charming. At the they, time. they weren't like, we got a dame here. <laughs> She's an RM. No, no, yeah, yeah. I was definitely the only like um, person of color or mm-hmm. color person in that department when I was hired. That's for sure. That is for sure. Um, do you say BIPOC outside of a work environment? I never say BIPOC. I just I only say it to you. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> I just learned what it meant not too long ago. <laughs> I thought it was by people of color. Yeah, you know what? You um, really need some training. <laughs> I mean, it took me forever to realize that FTW was for, for the win and not fuck the world. I was like, oh, man, people just love talking like Tupac. Um, so if you have an abbreviation, you better tell me what it means. Like, I, like look, dude, I don't give a shit about abbreviations. I try not to use them. So, like I type out okay in a text. Like, I'm that bad. That's because you're old too, like me. Even though you're trying to pretend to be so young, if you type out okay, I think I'm. No, I'm officially old. old. My kids tell me I'm old. 
Okay, but you can still pull the young card on me. All I can say is, um, we'll all be old one day. So uh, don't be too proud of being young. Young Things people, hurt. young people, don't be too proud of being young. That too, that is yes. Um, oof. do you encounter this? With your two black students, there's got to be at least seven black students at UC Irvine. Seven? They're more than that. They're more than that. Is there, you, I was, I've been there. I know you've been there, but you didn't <sighs> count all of them. Oh, uh, you I know was counting. I'm, I'm always counting. You're... <laughs> I'm always counting. I was in a band with my Asian next mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. for seven years. And for yeah. seven years, we played one game. And it wasn't counting license plates. It was called Count Your Race. And whenever we left the Bay Area, we would play Count Your Race. I'm still playing Count Your Race Jason, 11 years later. There are 27,000 undergraduates. How many did you actually see that day? I there's, don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them walking around. <laughs> I like how anecdotal your evidence is. Obviously, you do not understand the protocols of being a professional academic. Okay, that is not a uh, statistically significant. Do you want me? If I Google, I, there's someone right now that needs to Google the racial breakdown of University of California, Irvine. Okay, I think it's yeah, two or three percent black, which means I that didn't there's see like black people in Irvine. There are more and more of them. Are you mad right, about Well, this? I don't know. There's still <laughs> very few of them. Jason, okay, if this is what's going to get your goat, what about the fact that, like, the average home price in Irvine is, like, a million dollars or something? Does that bother you? Are there black people paying it? There's some black people. Paying <laughs> it. I hope that makes you happy. It's a win for me, according to everyone else. The fact that those people get to live in a million-dollar house and I'm an economic refugee in Mexico means... Win. Yeah, yeah. Means a win for everyone. D-E-I. One again. Just like the picture on the background here, all these smiling faces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love all this. Oh, you know what gets me really mad, Gus? This is going to cancel me. Please cancel me now. Okay, Jason is right. There are very few African-American students. It's like 3% out of not 27,000. They keep wanting to up the numbers, which is good. And we um, have like maybe 55% Asian-American of international. <laughs> and then like 35% Latino. I don't know. It's like, okay, 40% Asian, 40% Latino, 3% um, African-American, the rest white. I'm, I'm making these numbers up. But um in our publicity, there's always an African American person featured, like doing in a lab uh, on on the on the lawn reading a book, um, playing, like uh, going to the going to get boba, um, heading to the classroom, and I'm like really mad about that. Like, if you're going to do this kind of thing, do proportional representation in our PR. Even going to eat with you in the nearby strip mall, I didn't feel represented in my food choices. You are so absurd. You were like practically Asian, so you would be happy having Asian food. 
you know I'm coming up. <laughs> you are lucky. You are lucky. Oh, um, Bert I need says, a mixed need, dude for this. This is Bert Cooper. Bert Cooper says, yo, do y'all need a mixed dude for the UCS? Because writing don't pay that way. <laughs> well, Bert, can you um can you be in a lab? Um, <laughs> one minute reading a book on Lana. Can you can you multitask? Like just be everywhere on campus all the time, going to Boba, buying a book, or if the students even buy books. I don't know if they buy books. Students don't buy books anymore. But um. Oh, playing um, playing some really white ass game like hacky sack. <laughs> if the UC Irvine ads are black people playing hacky sack, we need more black people going to UC Irvine. Just, just for the Google Earth picture. <laughs> we got what the one black person in California who doesn't play hacky sack. What like two black dudes playing hacky sack, dressed like fucking Taiwo? That is, that is my dream. That's the dream that I have for America. Um. Okay, we're really getting silly here. I should I should go and respond. Actually, I feel better now. Um, I'm just I'm just gonna say right here right now that we um actually um. Jason are very serious about all these issues and we are only laughing because it's the laughter of despair. It is. And the laughter of solidarity, because what else do we have in the face of this insanity? There's a question that uh, TIR subscriber Dizzle McFizzle has for (laughs) most of our guests. Okay. And he's asking you, what is Dr. Lou's opinion on the hose? Loyal, not loyal. Which hose? Which hose? <laughs> Which ones? <laughs> Can we ask Dizzle McMizzle? I don't know. Like, there's so many different kinds of hose. The... <laughs> No, I'm serious. I don't know which hose. Um, I believe they're asking about the PMC DEI hose. Oh, loyal, not loyal? Yeah. To what? To their own people? <laughs> Just in general. Oh, not loyal. Not loyal. <laughs> there you go. But you know what? you got to respect the grift. <laughs> the hoe grift? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> this is why I can't. Actually, get I don't. Job. I don't. I don't. Yeah, this is why we we will be canceled. We go. You know, I no, I don't respect the grip, but at the same time, like I just wonder if some of these people have grown up with like professor moms and lawyers, and they're just all in like they they've all been you know like Claudine Gay gone to Exeter, then Harvard, then Stanford, then Harvard again, whatever, like they actually believe that their success is good for African-Americans. And maybe like they're so ideologically like um, infused with liberal representational politics that they just believe 
that like my being a really successful person at Harvard means like African Americans are succeeding in America. I, but, but you know, I'm not, I can never talk? question them. I mean, we're, they're not going to like answer my question, but, um, but isn't that what they've been taught though? Like if you think about mass media, you know, I'm 46. So, uh, I've been seeing images of black people doing good the majority of my i would say a life that i can remember watching television okay. and reading books right. and that sadly that's kind of what black history month can become right just a series of these black achievements and that's what it is like a weird trivia um you mean oh we got a new name for our band black academic black <laughs> Just, okay, go on. Sorry. Sorry. But but is it can can we? Jason's life is proof that that shit don't work. Thanks, Bert. <laughs> you know what, Bert Cooper? Keep fucking with me. You know. <laughs> but seriously, it's easy to see middle class black people growing up, or just. Mexicans, you people growing up and feeling like a credit to your race because you're succeeding, because that's what you've been told by society at large. I guess. I mean, it's back to what you said about kind of taking everybody to the you know mental gulag and teaching them how to think critically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, I think it's a form of false consciousness, but um, yeah, the liberal ideology is strong. And the thing that I think we need in terms of counter propaganda, I know this doesn't sound very happy making, but I like it is that um, we shouldn't have to say um, we celebrate extraordinary people of color. We should be celebrating ordinary people, ordinary working class people. I hate, I also have this joke about if they give you a month you, in America to celebrate you, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you know you, you're in trouble, you've been in trouble. Like, do they have white man month? No, because they don't need it. They're not white in trouble. Man. Not white man month. Okay, rich man month. Now rich you're going to make some month. black person go, every month is white man month. Yeah, that's right. They don't, that's why they don't need a month. And there's some white man like disco dances right by, like goddamn right. <laughs> Everybody dance. It's white man month. It's white man month every month. <laughs> white people high fiving and shit. Throwing hors d'oeuvres <laughs> into his mouth. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I think every, I think ordinary, like not very extraordinary people should be celebrated. And that is the core of Marxism and leftism. Like we should celebrate the average person, be able to have dignity in their lives. And this mm. whole like specialness thing is all about the meritocracy. And yeah, Booker T and W.E.B. Du Bois did feed into that with like the oh, black God, yeah. leaders of the race. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, you know that that quote. What? You know why God loved ordinary people. That's right. Because every day ordinary people what? do extraordinary things. Yeah.
you know, it wouldn't even be bad if we went into that back into that kind of Christianity. I mean, I'm at this point, like just looking for anything that will mobilize and speak to um, ma the majority of people, like stop celebrating the super special, mm -hmm. you know, anyway, I'm, you know, I've got to run. Okay. I, I know you I'm have house guests. You, like yeah, I said, yeah. you, you pulled, look, thank you so much. Oh, it's Jason month. Yes. Yeah, so please, everyone who's been on the stream, Jason and I are actually very serious about these issues, even though he's dancing in the back. <laughs> <laughs> that's why, that's why people are Clap your hands. Clap your hands. <laughs> you might, and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> I hope you have a big white disco as soon as you leave this fucking stream because you have a wonderful stereo system in your house. I do, I do. All right. Um anyway, really pleasure and uh take care everyone. I love the questions. I just um I was reading them, I couldn't really respond to all of them, but um it was good. Thank you. And Thank hopefully you. I'll see you soon since I'm driving up Wednesday. All right. Oh, yeah. And file, I, I do want to give a shout out to my Substack, CluAnon, C-L-U-Anon at Substack.com. And I'm on and off Twitter at BureaucatLoo. But um, I hope to see the, you guys were great. The chat was very funny. Just remember that when you go on another show, be like, your show is OK, but it's not as good as TIR. Um, I need you to say that more. Jason and I actually um, book you down because we're not white. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get off the stream before you get canceled. I want you to have your house. Okay. <laughs> right. Bye, guys. Thank Bye, you. Everyone. Thank you. That was my good friend. Bit of a mentor. I don't think I'm underselling that by saying that. Bit of a mentor, Catherine Liu. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I want to find that clip of uh, of Jimmy V making that uh, that say that thing about ordinary people because it, it, was, it is very Christian. And I think he was Catholic. Um, but there's nobody here and I can't pull it up and talk to you guys at the same time. That didn't sound right at all. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Oops. For you, nigga. That's double oops. But I think that is the sound of people mad about this show. <sighs> Bert Cooper, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the text message. <laughs> ah! I want to I'm gonna try to find that. Hold on, guys. Give me a second. I'm gonna try to find this. Jimmy V God speech. Because he's got so many parts of that speech. People. I'm not going to lie. I watched that. Um, oh, I found it. I watched the Jimmy V documentary probably seven times. At least. And cried every time. It is... Really, 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 really good. Really moving, really motivating. Um, if you know me, uh, my morning routine looks like a um, a rocky training montage. 
So let's uh, let's watch this. Thank you guys. Hopefully, playing this won't get the show demonetized. Um, sadly, we've been getting we've been having that happen without even doing stuff like this. So this is he's now deceased. He had cancer. Um, Jimmy Valvano was a college basketball coach that won a championship. Oh God, what school was that? Someone will remember the school. I can't even remember the school right now. The personal philosophy of how you live your life. Uh, here's mine, very simply put. You plus motivation equals success. I have that only thing in my locker room. There's nothing else in my locker room but that sign. You plus motivation <clears throat> equals success. I have it on cards, bookmarks. I have it on everything. I, it's, it's what is, it drives me. It's a passion. I was 16 years old. I heard the Reverend Bob Richards speak. Remember him, the Wheaties guy, the Kathleen, uh, uh Pope Vault Champion Olympics? And this is what he said, right? Gentleman said it before, but this is what, this is what, I was 16. Bob Richards looked over a group of these young kids at a basketball camp and said, the Lord must have loved ordinary people because he made so many of us. And here I am, 16, thinking I'm special. And here's a man I respect, said, the Lord must have loved ordinary people. He made so many of us ordinary. And I was a little, you know, you get a little down at 16 when someone's telling you that. And then he said the line that changed my life at 16 that I felt then. I'm 41 years old. I've been working 21 years in my business, and I feel it the same way today. He said, every single day in every walk of life, ordinary people do extraordinary things. Ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things. And I raised my hand. I'm applying for the job right now. I'm an ordinary guy. I want to do extraordinary things in my life. And I believe it. I think that's true. I think that's what it's all about. There you guys go. It's also part of the documentary. <clears throat> they have these little clips of that that speech. I think that was right around the time he got his diagnosis. Very, very motivational guy. NC State was a school. Thank you. I wasn't sure if it was NC State, uh, Timothy Cornerson. But yes. So well, tell me what you guys think. Catherine and I were serious for about an hour. About 20 minutes, some non-seriousness, some tomfoolery, if you will. But I want to know what you guys think about diversity, equity, inclusion. Does it help? Has it made your workplace better or your academic environment better? I don't know. Do you feel it's doing anything? I mean, these these companies charge ridiculous amounts of money for these trainings. Ridiculous amounts of money for these trainings. And to think they're going to double in the amount of money they bring in is insane. In just a year. $7.5 billion. It's insane. So we should leave with uh, a training video. Some wonderful person uploaded a uh, training video. Or not. No, maybe we'll save it. I don't want to get the stream cut down. We'll save it for the champagne room for next week. Next week we'll be back talking Lenin. And some USSR history and break down the Tucker Carlson conversation with 
Vladimir Lenin with one of our sometimes wise here on TIR, good friend Alex Herbert. So thank you guys once again for hanging out. We'll see you later. Oh, fuck, I forgot. And then Wednesday, if you're in the L.A. area, come hang out with me and Ben at the Rainbow. We're going to have our commie single guy Valentine's Day again. It was a lot of fun. Jason having a Biden moment. No, I'm do- I have to do too many things at once. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Keep- hey, hey. Hey, keep fucking with me. (laughs) So, on that note, thank you guys. And, oh, it's always what it's all about. We are out.